This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. A new project is studying how residents of Greenbrier County recovered from the flood of 2016 and how the results could shape more effective flood responses both at the state and national levels in the future. We're now several years out from the flood. Uh, and yet we know that communities are continuing to deal with the lingering impacts and recovery process. That story and more coming up this West Virginia morning. President Joe Biden is getting pushback from West Virginia senior senator for comments he made on the campaign trail about coal. Curtis Tate has more. Senator Joe Manchin called on Biden to apologize for Friday remarks in which the president said that coal plants would be shut down and replaced with wind and solar. Manchin called the remarks, quote, outrageous and divorced from reality. Following Manchin's criticism, the White House issued a statement praising the contribution of coal miners and communities to the nation's economy. Coal generates about 22% of the nation's electricity, down from nearly half in 2010. The Inflation Reduction Act, which passed with Manchin's support, provides incentives for power companies to move away from coal and toward renewables, but does not require them to do so. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. West Virginians will vote tomorrow in new districts after the state's redistricting in 2021. As Chris Schultz reports, for some voters, it will be the first time they elect only one delegate to the House. Until this year, West Virginia was one of the last 10 states to still use multi-member districts in its House of Delegates. Monongalia County's five-member 51st District was the largest in the state. The passage of House Bill 4002 in 2018 required West Virginia to create single-member districts. During the 2021 redistricting process, the state created 100 single-member districts, doing away with the previous mix of 64 districts, some single-member and some multi. Carrie Blaney is the county clerk for Monongalia County. She says her office saw some confusion about the new districts during the primary election earlier this year. The biggest question that the voters had from seeing the single-member districts was where were the rest of the candidates. Having that many candidates in a multiple-member district and then going to single-member districts was a big change for our voters. Blaney says despite the exposure during the primary, her office is still answering questions about the district change in the lead-up to the general election, when more voters are likely to participate. She says education efforts have been ongoing. We have been trying to increase our voter awareness and our education around these changes to the ballot uh, all summer, and we've I've been running the sample ballots, of course, on our website and providing all that information. Blaney says redistricting, which by law must be completed every 10 years to account for changes in population, is always a challenge. She says that while the shift to single-member districts added to the complexity of the process, voters seem positive about the change. I think that voters like the idea that the candidates that they would be voting for on their ballot would be representing their particular area. You would tend to, to think that if you were in a single-member district that you would recognize the name, would know the candidate, their kids would go to school together, they would see them at different community functions. Kayla Young is one of four delegates from the old multi-member 35th district in Kanawha County. 
She is now the Democratic candidate in the new single-member 56th district, and similar to Blaney, acknowledges that the change has caused confusion for voters. But Young says the confusion stems from the state using multi-member districts in the first place. There aren't a lot of multi-member districts. It's kind of been confusing to me that we've had some of them have been multi-member and some haven't. So I don't know how it could have gone better, but I do think it is somewhat confusing. Despite the confusion, Young says she is excited for the opportunity to serve in a single-member district. I'm glad that we're moving to single-member districts. I think it's going to be better representation for people. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Young's race has her running against another incumbent, Republican and fellow delegate for the 35th District, Andrew Anderson. Anderson was appointed by Governor Jim Justice in August after Delegate Larry Pack resigned to join Justice's office as a senior advisor. Anderson did not return our request for an interview in time for this story. Young says the biggest change for her as a delegate will be the smaller, more manageable number of constituents. It's been interesting for me coming from a multi-member district to a single-member district. I'm used to talking to, to about 85 to 90,000 people, and now I need to talk to about 18,000 people. The text of House Bill 4002 begins by stating, Single-member districts best exemplify the principle of one person, one vote. Voters will put that to the test come Tuesday. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. It's 749. Chance of rain this morning in the south, becoming mostly sunny. Highs today in the 60s and 70s. Clear tonight, lows in the 40s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with highs in the 50s and 60s. Support for the weather forecast is provided by the attorneys at Torres Save a Law, representing firefighters, police officers, and West Virginia families. Information at TorresSaveAlaw.com. And by HD Media, presenting digital and print subscriptions of the Charleston Gazette Mail and Herald Dispatch for when you're on the go. Information at hdmediallc.com. Six years have passed since the 2016 flood in southern West Virginia that killed 23 people and ravaged communities like White Sulphur Springs and Raynell. Despite that, researchers say the state does not have a long-term flood recovery plan. Reporter Shepard Snyder spoke with WVU researcher and assistant professor of geography, Jamie Shin, on her project studying how residents of Greenbrier County recovered from the flood and how the results could shape more effective flood responses, both at the state and national levels in the future. Getting started, I was just wondering if you could tell me about this research project and what the research process will look like. We'll be focusing on two towns within Greenbrier County, Raynell and White Sulphur Springs, and we'll be engaging with community members through a variety of tools. So we'll do a countywide survey that any resident over the age of 18 is welcome to take. We'll do some more targeted focus groups with people who were involved in both the response and recovery to the flood as well as impacted by the flood. 
and then some interviews with people at regional, state, and national levels who were involved uh, or represent organizations that were involved in flood response and recovery. And our goal in doing that is to kind of answer three research questions. We're now several years out from the flood, uh, and yet we know that communities are continuing to deal with the lingering impacts and recovery process. And yet what we've been told by people on the ground is that we have yet to systematically document the lessons learned from the flood, how, how response and recovery went, what went well, what could have gone better, so that we can better prepare for future floods. And we only need to look as far as Eastern Kentucky in recent months to, to know that these types of things are likely to happen again in the region. And so we have kind of three overarching goals with this stage one project. The first is to identify gaps in organizational capacity that we can fill to create a more robust flood response and, and long-term recovery. So what do local first responders need to be equipped to respond as quickly and as effectively as possible? What do community and county level groups need? And what do national level groups need? Um, how can we make sure that every group at every scale has the capacity, the best capacity possible to respond? And then what is the cross-organizational capacity building and coordination that we can do between these groups? So for instance, in the 2016 flood, we know that all sorts of actors responded. We had voluntary first responders, trained first responders, National Guard, FEMA, Red Cross, but also a huge amount of volunteers coming in and faith-based organizations. We had the Appalachian Service Project. We had the Mennonite Disaster Committee, right? Who spent years in these communities helping to rebuild and respond. Our question is, is there a better way we can in advance coordinate among these groups to make sure that our response and recovery is as effective and efficient as possible in the future? The third question that we're trying to answer in this is what knowledge do people need that they don't have access to to best plan for these events? And so for that, we're working with our partners at the West Virginia GIS Technical Center, which is a state organization that's housed here at WVU, to do a participatory GIS mapping exercise where essentially these GIS experts are going to present and also build new flood risk tools. So these might look like flood risk maps or 3D imaging of what a particular part of town will look like under different flood scenarios. Bring these to the community focus groups, ask people to respond to them. Are they useful? Do they contain the information they need? Are they user friendly? And then come back to the drawing board and re create these tools with that feedback in mind. So the stage two vision that we'll propose to the National Science Foundation in the spring is to use whatever we learn in stage one through these different, uh, these different methods. So from the survey, from the focus groups, from interviews, from the mapping, to build out what we're calling the West Virginia Flood Resilience Framework. And the vision for the framework is that it will be an online toolkit accessible to anybody to use, and this could be residents, but it could also be um, local, you know, local government agencies. It could be nonprofits. It could be the state resilience office. How are state and local communities currently responding to these types of disasters? I think it's so place dependent. Um, and so one thing we're really cautious of in this project is this will not be a one solution fits all kind of thing, right? No county, no town is going to respond the same as another because of the particular context of that place. However, we also know that there are broad lessons that we hope 
we can apply right across the board. Um, so one of the reasons we've selected both Raynell and White Sulphur Springs is because they've had really different experiences with flood recovery. Arguably, White Sulphur Springs has recovered at a faster and maybe more complete rate than Raynell. And largely, we think that's because White Sulphur Springs has a different socioeconomic context, right? The presence of the Greenbrier um, and just kind of longer term histories of engagement with the tourism economy has made it so that Raynell was in a more vulnerable position before the flood than White Sulphur was. And so our hypothesis is that that made it harder for Raynell to recover. You kind of specialize in researching social vulnerability and climate change adaptation. How does mm -hmm. that perspective kind of affect this research project in particular? Well, we know from climate models that we expect West Virginia to get wetter. Um, we know broadly that we expect more frequent and intensity in precipitation events leading to flooding. And so while we hope there's never a flood like the one in 2016, we know that statistically it's very likely that there will be. Um, and so how, how can we, how can we plan ahead for that, right? How can we kind of work under that reality? And so one thing that the West Virginia Technical GIS Technical Center is doing in this project is using those models to think through risk. So you may have been flooded in 2016 and you may have raised your home in accordance with FEMA regulations. Um, and yet, is that enough to protect you from the flood scenarios that we're seeing um, from, from the climate models that we have access to? And so in some cases, the answer is yes, but in some cases, the answer is no. And so that's exactly the type of knowledge we want to give to communities so that they can start to plan um, for kind of the response to, to what we think is inevitable, increased intensity and frequency of flooding as a result of climate change. And West Virginia is no stranger to flooding, right? This is not a new story, but we expect that this story will become more common in the future. That was WVU researcher and assistant professor of geography, Jamie Shin, speaking with Shepard Snyder about her research and documentation on flood recovery in Greenbrier County. West Virginia Morning is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting, which is solely responsible for its content. You can keep up with the latest West Virginia news throughout the day on our website, wvpublic.org. Support for our news bureaus comes from West Virginia University, Concord University, and Shepherd University. West Virginia Morning is produced with help from Amelia Nicely, Bill Lynch, Caroline McGregor, Curtis Tate, Chris Schultz, Eric Douglas, Jessica Lilly, Liz McCormick, Randy Yowie, and Shepard Snyder. Eric Douglas is our news director, and he produced today's show. I'm your host, Teresa Wills. This is West Virginia Morning.